like I said, there's too much in First John. There's too much. And I, I actually am going to have trouble preaching the same sermon that I preached last service. So what we're going to do is try something. I, I just had this thought. I'm going to preach it backwards. So I want you to find 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. It's on page 1024 of your pew Bible. And if you're just looking for 1 John in the Bible, it's toward the very back. So just find Revelation, start piecing your way back from Revelation. You'll get to John pretty quick. Go past 2nd and 3rd John. You'll see how short those are. We're going to do those next week. But uh, we're going to go backwards. And, and we're going to take what John says very seriously, recognizing that he is often speaking in circles. All right? So John can be hard to read. If you sit down and you try, you're like, you're like, wait, didn't he just say that? Wait, didn't he just say the opposite? Wait, he's saying that again. He speaks in circles. And this is not a problem with him. It's, it's actually a problem with us. We think everything has to be in a straight line. We think everything has to be start to finish. We don't have a way to just be. We're always going somewhere. A lot of people carry a lot of anxiety because they're always going somewhere. They think that Christianity is a way to something. And it's true. We are going through the desert to everlasting life on the last day. But it's already here. More than being a way to something, it is a way of something. A way of being. And that's what John's trying to get at. That the fullness of the way of being righteousness has already come in Jesus for you. And that this is not going to leave you alone. It's going to make you different than people around you. Set apart is the language we've been using here at St. Paul. John will prefer to talk about light as opposed to darkness. Okay, so with that in mind, it's going to speak in circles. And we got to take the whole thing, not just one piece at a time. Don't cherry pick verses out of John to make your points. Uh, he says at the end of the book, here's how he closes the book. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Now, that verse 20 has got so much in it, I want to tear it apart. But the last verse is so short, and it's like this huge left turn. Because the whole book, John's talking about love. He's talking about light. He's talking about Jesus. He'll explain what the Antichrist means, and we'll talk about that here this morning. But then suddenly at the end, he's like, and by the way, Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. What does that mean? Well, it does mean this. We talked about this last week, I think. It means you can shipwreck your faith. You can fall away from what you have come to believe and know. You can forget what was proclaimed from the beginning. And when that happens, it will be because you are worshiping idols. Now, most people today think we've gotten rid of idols, that we don't set up statues and worship them anymore. But if you go visit 
any sports place where they've got a big, big stadium that's built for the worship of glory, I guarantee you can find a couple statues out front declaring an eternity that's not the one we believe in. And most people have a household god or two, maybe made by Samsung, maybe made by who knows. Huh? And there's always a talking face on it telling you what to believe. Huh? So It's not so different today. Huh? I'm not saying that if you watch a movie, you're an idolater. I'm saying that if you're watching a movie, you might be. And if you don't keep your heart from believing in the lies that are being told to you, then you will be led astray to trying to grab and hold on to this world as if this world is what really matters and trying to make sacrifices to this world for this world as if this world is what really matters. And the more that that happens, the more you will forget the world to come, which has really been, again, John's point all the way through the book. So that's the warning at the end of the book, now here at the start of the sermon. But let's look then again at verse 20. This is so power-packed. It's chock full of stuff. First, we know. Just let that stand alone for a second. How much do you know what's going on today? Forgive me if I sound political, but it seems to me that the current man in the White House isn't all there. It seems to me He's aging. Forget his politics. He's stumbling over words. But do I know that? And if I were to say, I know that, wouldn't there be someone who would say, you don't know that. I know otherwise. So how much do we know? And this is the point, right? But we know that the Son of God has come. We do know that. And anybody who would say otherwise is a liar and the Antichrist, as we'll see here in a few moments, right? We know that the history of Jesus showing up, being who Jesus is according to our creeds, is indisputable. Now, maybe you have not done the research yourself, but I have. And the fact of the matter is very plain. There is nothing you can know before George Washington or maybe Napoleon as certain as what we know about Jesus Christ, including his resurrection. If he were to get a fair trial in a court of law presenting the evidence of eyewitnesses saying, we saw this happen. If you were to admit as evidence written documents by those who say, we are eyewitnesses who saw this happen, it is indisputable. You cannot even find another potential cause. No one has, there's motive for liars, but no one actually could have pulled the crime, quote unquote, off. The only way to explain, and here's just one of the examples, the only way to explain thousands of Jews stopping worship on the Sabbath over a weekend is something nuts happened. They saw someone who rose from the dead on a different day. That's what they saw. Okay, so, so we know the Son of God has come, and more than just he came, he has given us understanding. Now, can you imagine the difference between knowledge and understanding? Knowledge is from above. It comes from outside of you. It exists without you. Understanding is from below. It is how you receive and appropriate that knowledge. It is part of what it means to grow in wisdom. You don't just have facts, you have understanding of the facts. 
and we know that the Son of God coming has given you understanding. Now, that's something you kind of just have to believe. Huh? That by knowing that he is risen, he is risen. Alleluia. By knowing that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, you understand more than those who don't know that. And that understanding is not stagnant. It is not static. It will grow. It will not necessarily make you happy, but it will make you understand the things that make for peace. We've been given this. Don't miss. It's not that you earn it. It's been given to you where, you know this, in the Bible, in the words he left behind, in the proclamation of who he is, what he's done, all these things. We have understanding so that you may know him who is true. That's the Father. That's the God who made all things. The understanding that Jesus brings is you may know who God really is. And here's the substance of it. He is not a God who demands sacrifice from you. He is rather a God who wants to have mercy on you. The distinction between Christianity and every other religion in the world, including false Christianity, is all the falsehoods say, if you want to get to a better place, you have to do X. You have to do blank. And it will involve sacrifice in some way. Christianity comes and says, blessed are you now. Huh? Christianity comes and says, the one who is true, the one who never lies, by an oath, meaning doubly so it's true since he's God and can't lie, and now he's swearing it to you, he anoints you with a promise. I baptize you. I wash you. You're mine now. Which means, again, by faith, you can face any situation in life and trust that promise. And this is the Christian warfare. Not that you walk out, promise that God is for you, and then it's all roses. It's all thorns. And you don't doubt that God's got those thorns there for a reason. And that the way of being righteous through faith will walk you through those thorns to the world of Eden, where there are no more thorns on that last day. You know this true God who is your Father. And you know you are in Him who is true. Now, both father and son, because he says, in his son, Jesus Christ. And although John never uses the word baptism in the text we heard from chapter 2, he says you're anointed in Christ, the word anointed. In the Old Testament, that would be the word messiahed, right? In the New Testament, that would be the word christened. It means you've had something poured on you to mark you as different from the world. And although there's lots of Christians that want to believe that you have to be baptized and it doesn't do anything, it's really strange. To just not believe that when God says, pour this on people, and now you're christened, now you're anointed, you would deny that, especially when other texts very clearly say that this anointing puts you into Jesus. Not by the power of the water, but by the power of the promise that goes with the water. Yeah, You are in Jesus Christ. You can know this. And you have better understanding than the world the more you know this that he is the true God and eternal life. One of the hardest things to believe is that you already are immortal. It's hard to believe because your body is still dying. 
And you're going to face that someday, probably. I mean, Christ could come back and blink of an eye and all that. But the vast majority of history, Christians who are immortal die in their bodies. But the temptation is to think then that you're actually dying. When the truth is you're not. You have Jesus Christ inside of you. You feast upon his flesh and blood. You've been baptized into him. You are immortal now. You are eternally living now. Eternal life is not something that's coming later. It's already here. And the great part about it is that the body, which will be eternal later, that's amazing. But the faith that says, I'm alive forever, I can't die, that's already here. And you can live with that kind of confidence again in the thorns, pricked by the thorn. Man, that hurts, but it's going to pass and I won't. Again, this is what you may know because you are in Jesus Christ and he is eternal life. All right. Moving backwards then. That's the summary of the book already. It's about then fighting the world who's trying to make you forget this and push you in other directions. Let's look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, where it says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay, so a moment ago I said you're in Christ. Now it's saying you're born again. That's language out of John's gospel. Born again by water and the spirit. A promise that you are not only who you came out of your mother as, but you also have been brought out of the wounds of Jesus as something new. Born from heaven. Born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So coming out of the knowledge that you're in Christ The thing that changes, the thing that's different about you from the pagan is you no longer have to worry about you quite so much. You will. Don't get me wrong. Your flesh is here, but you don't have to. The pagan honestly has to try to get ready for judgment. They have to be prepared to make, they've got no one on their side, but you have Christ as your advocate. And so you don't have to worry about you anymore. The moment that starts to sink in, your eyes are open in a different way. And guess what you can see? Everybody else. You follow me? And so the part that God changes in you, birthing you out of God, is you begin to look around here at church and see all these other people also born out of God. And you get to know they're immortal too. And so that means, I mean, if you don't like each other, you're going to have to get used to each other eventually. Huh? You're never going away. Huh? And so we work toward understanding what that means to love each other. Now, we're going to talk about this probably a little later too, but the word love is a very vanilla word. It's not that helpful as a word. It's, it's squishy. Huh? Um, And it it really can be used now to mean more like be nice. I think that is what it means. When people say, I love this, I love that, you should be more loving. They just just mean be nice. Uh, The word that John uses in Greek, he uses two. And he goes back and forth between them. One of them is a powerful word, agape. You may have heard of this word before. What it means is to be committed. To be committed, that I would be committed to my wife 
and love her even should she not love me. And this word is primarily a word about God's love for you. This is where it's good news. That the love of God he has for you is his commitment to you to never leave you nor forsake you. And this that God gives as his mercy, it's another good way to think of that word. This mercy is what he promises to pour into you, both for you and from you, right? Imagine that you're a cup and he's pouring the mercy down into you and then it fills up and it begins to overflow. Or I kind of like to think maybe, you know, I got some holes in me and I leak. You know, so I'm dropping mercy everywhere I go, whether I know it or not. That is the promise again that you may know shall take place. Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life, like Psalm 23 says, right? They're going to chase you. They're going to hound you. And they're going to exude from you. All right, so that's agape. The other word John likes to use is uh, phileo. Phileo, like Philadelphia, named the city of brotherly love. Not so much these days. I know most of our cities are in great trial these days. Uh, But brotherly love, it it means the love between two brothers, but what it really means is like camaraderie. Or, as we'll talk about this word later, we'll see this word, I'll talk about it now, it means fellowship, okay? Fellowship. What does it mean to have camaraderie and fellowship? It's not just that you like the other person because you can like see their soul or something. If you think about who most of your friends are, There are people you have something in common with, right? So fellowship means to have things in common. So if you go to the store and you see someone wearing, what is it, Packers, Bears, I don't know, whatever you think is great, you see someone wearing that and you go, I like that person, right? Because you have a fellowship, you have a camaraderie with each other. And shortly, by the way, that word fellowship The word has nothing to do with boats. It's an archaic word that comes from a Norse word that we still have, shape, shape, the shape of something. So to have fellowship is to be in the same shape as someone else. That's what phileo, to love others who have your shape. But now, okay, what is that particular brotherhood we're supposed to love or will love? It's not just people who like the same sports teams. It's people who are filled by the same shape of bread and wine, which Jesus Christ has given to us as the declaration of his covering us from our sins, right? Those who are, again, born from God. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Oh, goodness. I'm going to read that verse again. This makes Lutherans feel uneasy. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Does that mean that I know I'm saved when I keep the commandments? And the answer is no, you didn't read the verse. But if you took the verse by itself and decided to make something up that the world would teach you, that's what you'd come up with. But what it says is not, by this we know that we are saved. It says, this is how you know you love other people. Do you want to love other people? Well, you don't just do whatever you feel like. You obey the commandments of God. That's how you love other people. Does that mean that's going to make you saved? No, Jesus saved you now that you're saved. 
Are you going to want to love other people? Yes. How do I learn to do this? Obey the commandments of God. Which ones? Oh, there's a story about that. There's a guy who comes to Jesus. Hey, which commandment should I keep if I want to be saved? Right? And it comes down to, uh, love your neighbor as yourself is his answer. And the man says, well, I did that. <laughs> and then he says, sell everything you have and follow me, which is not to say poverty is what God commands. That guy got a special call to be a disciple of Jesus and he didn't follow. That's a scary thought right there, right? But again, going back to which commandments, Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor. There's another story about Christ where he's asked by the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment? And he quotes Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your might, all your heart, all your soul, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, there again, how do I see what it means to love? It's not that I follow a list of rules. It's not that I'm just nice. It's that I learn to see the other person as having more value than I need to see in myself because I know my value is already taken care of by Jesus. So I don't have to try to defend myself even if they're attacking me. I can still see my enemy and strive to do good to my enemy. That doesn't mean let them win, right? But do good to my enemy because I don't have to worry about me anymore. I can see the other rather than always having to look in. Now, if that still seems too difficult to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, then the Ten Commandments are a really nice summary of the commandments of God. That's why we put them in our little thing called the catechism. It's a summary book, right? A summary of the commandments. But the point here again is, do you want to know how to love? Then strive to not murder. Strive to not commit adultery. Strive to not lie. Strive to not seal. Come to church every week. Obey the authorities as long as they're telling you to do good things, right? And of course, pray to Jesus' name. That's the second commandment there. That would be to not have an idol, the first commandment. All right, so then, for this is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep his commandments, right? When God loves us, it spills out of us onto others, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is where the Lutheran law gospel thing can be a little bit of a problem. Law gospel is not wrong unless you overplay your hand, right? And you ever play cards? You know what it means to overplay your hand? It means you didn't have the cards you thought you had, and you went on something that wouldn't get you where you wanted to go. Law gospel is marvelous for understanding the doctrine of justification. But if we use it to make it sound like you can never keep the commandments of God because you always have sin in your heart, we've not done ourselves any favor. John says the commandments don't make you feel bad. They're not burdensome, and you can fulfill them. Is he saying you can live without sin? No. He's just saying that loving other people isn't bad. It doesn't really hurt that much. In fact, it starts to feel good to the level that you can even be getting pelted with rocks, dying, and still pray that they would be forgiven. Now, I'm not saying you and me, but they've, Christians have done that in the past, okay? It's not burdensome to suffer when the suffering is of value, Anybody who's played sports knows this. They go and the coach says, run here, run there. And you're like, oh, I hit it. Oh, I hit it. And then you realize how good it is for you. And when you get on the court against the other team, you're running circles around them. Now you want to train harder. 
It's not burdensome to suffer when you know its end. And so again, the commandment, do unto others as they would have, as you would have it done to you, is not burdensome when you begin to see the other as the good God has given you to love. Right? That's John's point here. Uh, is, it, is this to say you'll never have your conscience accused by your failing to keep the law? No, I'm not saying that at all. Every day your conscience is going to accuse you. Every day you need to remember that it's not about you, it's about Jesus for you. But again, that's not without the recognition that love is a better way than hate. And that brotherhood is a stronger thing than segregation. And that we as a people are immortal now, walking toward a life that will never end, which is here already in our fellowship in this very thing. Yes? Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. The point is that the world and its deceptions will not be able to hold you any longer. They will not be able to chain you down. For this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So again, blessed are you when others speak all manner of evil against you. You see the world saying things that are not true about you. What is the power that has already overcome the world? You believe in Jesus anyway. You believe in his word anyway. They shout at you, but to say such things is hateful. And you know, they're liars who do not speak the truth. That is our faith, already a victory over the dying age that's passing away. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? I want to look at chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 first, because of its connection to the world. And then we're going to move into the Antichrist section. Okay, so. Turn the page, find chapter 2, verse 15. You've overcome the world, John just said. You've overcome it. So then, learn. Do not love the world or the things of the world. In fact, you can know that anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think we Christians need to get a little more confident believing that there are people who say, I'm a Christian, and they're not. It doesn't mean you need to accuse them to their face. It just means you need to stop giving them the benefit of the doubt when they evidently are idolaters who love the world more than God, who love the things of the world, who are entrapped in their deceptions. Now, what does it mean to love the world? That's verse 16. All that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but from the world. This is maybe best understood as our fallen need to make today last forever, unless we're going to make tomorrow better. Huh? Everybody kind of has that inside. And, and that's what it means to love the world. We see what we have, we want to keep it, or we want to have more. But Christianity promises you tomorrow you're going to have plenty when you believe that Jesus is your Savior. Does that mean tomorrow you're going to have everything? No. It's just that tomorrow when you feel like, I don't know if I have enough, you face the covetousness in your heart, you remember that God has chosen you to leave this world through the salvation that's in Christ. And so in this way, you're able to be content even when things aren't going the way that you like. Am I declaring that this is a perfection you can attain? 
No. Am I saying you can have more peace than your friends and neighbors who are running around like Chicken Little? Yes. Yes, you can. Because you know, next verse, the world is passing away. So whatever it is that you've got now, when you try to hold it, you're trying to hold something that's going to pass away. It's going to. There's nothing you could do. You have really set yourself up for disappointment. When you try to make tomorrow better than today, and God wants something different for the sake of many different good reasons he might, you then are not only trying to hold on to what's going to pass away, you're fighting against God. You're trying to stop him from doing what's good. What's he going to do? He's going to have to move you aside. Yeah, That's again what idolatry really is. So John here saying, do not love the world. This is not something you're going to do to earn God's favor. You have God's favor. So learn he's going to continue giving it to you. And stop trying to hold on to all the stuff as if that's the proof or as if you really need it. And again, begin to see whatever you have today as being for those who are around you. If you have two cloaks, someone needs a cloak, give them your cloak. Uh, rather than hold on just in case one wears out because you're worried you need to be your own God later. That's the idea here, yes? Loving the world is to put your hope in the present and forget that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, the world will pass away on that day, but you, immortal as you are, having eternal life in you, will never pass away. All right, let's move into where he starts to talk about the Antichrist. Why is this important? Because that word is another word that doesn't mean what everybody thinks it means. Okay? Uh, There are three sections in John where he will use this word. This is the only place in the Bible where this word will get used. It doesn't get used in the book of Revelation. Not a single time. So is the Antichrist some figurehead who's going to come at the very end of the world to make all these nations have a big fight against Israel? No! doesn't say that anywhere. It only talks about the Antichrist in 1 John. Is there a man of lawlessness who will be revealed at the appropriate time to take his seat in the church and deceive the nations? Yes, that's 2 Thessalonians. And if you're a Lutheran, you have to believe this already happened when the Pope set himself up as the ruler of the church who says everyone has to bow to me or you don't get to go to heaven, and if you want forgiveness, I'll sell it to you, but I need your money first. It's kind of hard not to see that as a bad thing if you're thinking about it, okay? Does that mean all Roman Catholics are going to hell? Someone just say no for me. No. (laughs) No. Does that mean the Roman Catholic Church isn't the church? No. The only way the Pope can be the man of lawlessness is if the Roman Catholic Church is the church. Because the man of lawlessness takes his seat in the church. Does that mean that the Pope is the only man of lawlessness? No. Anytime a pastor would stand up and preach falsely to gain glory for himself and build his own empire at the expense of Christian consciences in any place, whether it's the mega church in California or whether it's some other thing, some heretical group anywhere, this also is the man of lawlessness pretending to speak for God, okay? So what the Pope is, is the biggest one. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, anybody who's not a Christian, if you were to ask them, 
Who's in charge of Christianity? Who are they going to say? The Pope. Okay? So he has taken the name, I'm in charge of Christianity, falsely. And that's all we mean when we then, as Lutherans, call him the Antichrist. Although I don't like that term, I'd rather call him the man of lawlessness because it's only in 2 Thessalonians that this is talked about. And Antichrist is a word from 1 John, which, frankly, is a much wider word. And again, has nothing to do with the end of the world other than that, the end of the world began the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, so three sections are going to use this word antichrist. The first one is chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, which says this. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been born, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. All right, let's take that piece at a time. John is fond of calling you children. What he wants to do is have you believe that you are in God's hand. That Jesus sees you as little ones. And that's a good thing. Because he's the strong and mighty one to save. And then he says, it is the last hour. Does he say the last hour is coming a long time from now, so get ready for it? No. He says, it is the last hour. He's writing sometime between 90 and 100 AD. He says, already here. Does that mean he was wrong? He thought the world was going to end, but it didn't? No. It means what the Bible always means when it talks about the last days, that they are the end of the old covenant. The covenant that was begun at Sinai is over now. Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, Thank you. I wasn't sure if we should go with that one or not, but thank you. Um, And as a result, we don't know when the world's going to end. It can happen anytime. And this then is the last hour. We're not in the days of Noah. Before the flood came, we're in the days before the fire comes, and it could be any moment. It is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So he starts this off by saying, you've heard a rumor that there's this Antichrist, right? And the word's a Greek word. Would you believe that? You know some Greek. You know the word baptism? That's Greek. And you know the word Antichrist? That's Greek. And it just means what any anti-word should mean opposite of Christ, right? He says, you have heard that the opposite Christ, the the false Christ, the one who lies about who God is, is coming. And now many antichrists have come. Again, he's talking 2,000 years ago. How many you think there have been since? Uh, Quite a few. Uh, It is not an end times reality about one guy somewhere. And he's going to explain in a few moments what it means to be one of the many antichrists. But the first thing to learn about the antichrist from the actual Bible is that there's not one. There's many. Okay? There's many. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. How do we know there's the last hour? There's false teachers out there proclaiming false Christs. And then first definition of who these are, 
There are those who went out from us. Now, he's not necessarily talking about us, St. Paul. What's he talking about? Who's us? The apostles. Those who first, as eyewitnesses, were commissioned to teach what Jesus really wanted to be taught. And who went out from them? But those who began to teach different things. So if you want to define going out from us now, the simple answer is, do they believe the Bible is true? And the one who teaches differently than what the Bible says is therefore going out from us, right? They're going off into their own ideas as opposed to relying on what has been given as the witness and testimony. You may see these uh, uh, street signs, uh, that's not what they're called, billboards here in Rockford. There's two of them out there now that says, genuine Christians obey the commandments of Jesus. Huh? And as a Lutheran, you might be like, ooh, it's kind of not the gospel a little bit there. Right? It's, it's kind of a bit law. And that's true. It's also a quote from First John that we just saw a few moments ago. But what are they trying to say? The church that spent money to put that sign up there, what are they trying to say? They're trying to say the Bible's true. They're trying to say if you're a Christian, then you got to believe what the Bible says. You don't get to say that Jesus' personal pronoun is they and that he many times transgendered himself as a sign, blah, blah, blah. You don't get to say that marriage is not a man and a woman with the possibility of procreating children, and it's always been so from the beginning. You don't get to say it's okay to lie. You don't get to say there are many paths to heaven, right? You believe what the Bible says. Those who don't are not of us. And if there is, besides the failure of Christians to pray and read the scriptures privately over the last 40 years, another reason why the churches are in such a bad state right now is that we have put up with too many teachers who say, I know the Bible says this, but we've put up with it as a whole. Okay, so again, he says, they went out from us. If they were with us, they'd continue with us. And then notice, they went out that it might be plain they are not of us. Part of the dividing of the church, the schisming of the church in real time by false teachers creating new false churches where Antichrist teaches is to show the distinction to the angels, to show the faithful how they are not being led astray and the heavens see this glory now and judgment day will reveal it. So one of the first things a false teacher will teach you is that there shouldn't be any divisions in the church. That guy doesn't know the Bible. It's right here. There's other places. It's very clear. We must expect divisions to see who will hold to the scriptures or not. Jesus is going to sift us like a pile of wheat so that the chaff falls down and the seeds are held high. Huh? Antichrist says everybody should be happy. Everybody should be welcome. No one should feel bad ever. Huh? Huh? And that's there again to show us the difference. Going on, chapter 2, verse 22. You're only skipping one verse at first here. Um, 22 says this, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist who denies the father and the son. There's your most narrow definition of John's word antichrist. And here's where, interestingly, while as a Lutheran, I'll confess that the Pope sits in the office of the antichrist, because if I don't, someone will accuse me of heresy. Even though you and I know man of lawlessness is a more biblical term for what we want to mean. At the same time, does the Pope believe Jesus has risen from the dead and is the eternal son of the Father? 
Yeah. So is he the Antichrist? Well, no, not in that way. Except for then when he says that you got to pay him money to get to Jesus or pray to Mary to get to Jesus, now it's, it's getting squishy, right? It gets squishy. But this is the irony. You can have a pope who's a Christian and the Antichrist at the same time. You follow me? So again, when we talk about Pope as Antichrist, we're not being mean. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to say we hate the Pope. Although, if you're listening to the current one, he's saying worse and worse stuff these days. And there's even a whole fight within the Roman Catholic Church that thinks the current one isn't the one that should be the actual Pope. And I'll, I'll leave that madness for you know, your friends and neighbors. But um, they're learning now what we learned then. And put it that way. Back to the actual text. The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the liar. So, so anybody who comes and says, I love God, but Jesus is not the only son of the father. This also is antichrist, not just in the church, but outside of the church. So the Pope is one of the largest visible teachers of Christianity in the world. Okay. Um, or I should say of religion in the world. He's only really got one equal. You know who his equal is? He's, he's just as famous as the Pope, and he speaks for all of something that he really doesn't speak for all of them. Yeah? You know who I'm talking about? Dalai Lama. The, the head of Buddhism, although he's not. He's just the head of Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah? But he nonetheless is as famous as if he were speaking for all of Buddhism, and he'll say amazing things. He'll say things like, love your neighbor. He'll say things like, kindness is better than justice. He'll say stuff that sounds incredibly true. He'll even encourage you to walk a peaceful life and he can probably help you do it. But if you ask him who is Jesus, will he say he's the only son of the father who died to save us? No. He'll actually say something like he is a spiritual being that came down from the heavens to be incarnate and help us find the better way to nirvana, just like me. Because the Dalai Lama is the 15th whatever reincarnation of the Buddha, so he thinks. And the Buddha is a spiritual being who took on flesh to help us find our way out of the flesh. All right. So, again, who is the Antichrist? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. What's it mean that Jesus is the Christ? It means that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about a man born of woman who is God, who will save everybody. Yeah? And if you don't want to believe that, you have become party to the religion that is anti-Christ. And that makes sense, right? Anybody who doesn't think Jesus is Christ is against Christ. It's, it's kind of just logic right there, right? All right, so then verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. I mean, that's tough there, yeah? Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. I am the way and the truth and the life, he said, right? There is no name given under heaven by which men may be saved except Jesus. For the sake of time, jumping ahead to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where we're going to see this Antichrist talk show up again, where we're warned about false teaching, and not just false teaching, but demons. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, not every friend, not everything the TV says, but every spirit recognize that behind every lie is demonic oppression at work to hide you from Christ. Don't believe everything someone says about who God is, but test the spirits. 
to see whether they are from God. How would you do that? You'd know what the Bible says, and you'd find out if what they say is what the Bible says. If they come along and they say, I'm a prophet, I had a dream, and it's this, and they say something that's not in the Bible, you know they're a false prophet. It's not rocket science, but it is discipline. It is discipline. Test the spirits to see if they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'm not going to go through all of that again, but he points you back to the teaching of the apostles. He points you back to Jesus being the only revelation of God in mankind's history as the atoning sacrifice in reality, the true truth to get to God. And he also says that this is about Jesus coming in the flesh. It's not only about his incarnation, but don't miss that he hasn't stopped coming in the flesh. But in a few moments now, you are going to take his flesh and eat it. You're going to take his blood and drink it. He is going to come in the flesh. And so you see this kind of layering from who is the Antichrist? It's the one who's against Christ and anything he says. Therefore, it's one who says he's not the only son of God who's our savior. Therefore, it says he was not incarnate as God made flesh. Therefore, it says this bread and wine is only bread and wine and cannot possibly be God's body and blood for you. It's kind of wheels within wheels and layers within layers. But all of that is to teach against Christ and then to be, by definition, the Antichrist. And again, there are many people who teach such things, including some Christians who may yet be saved through the fire. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't test the spirit when they speak the lie and call the lie what it is, lest you be deceived. Hmm. I'd love to say more. and I'd love to wrap this up cleanly. Let's, let's do this to try to wrap it up. Um, I commend you to go home this week and read chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 2. You'll find a nice summary of what I've said. If you don't read the whole book, just read 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 2. But let's close by looking at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And the good news. Hmm? Paul writes, and I can't help, I, 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 I grew up in the LCMS. I went to an LCMS school and they made us memorize Bible verses. And it was painful. And I didn't really try very hard. I just tried to get it done as fast as I could. But some of them stuck. And one of them is this one. And it was in the NIV, which is not a great translation. It really isn't. And yet on this verse, on this verse, they kind of get it. I mean, the ESV, see what kind of love the Father has given. NIV, see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us. He's lavished 
love upon us. That we should be called children of God. That's the love. This idea that everybody who's out there, who's a person, who's a human, is like God's son, that's nonsense. That's 18th century deistic, capitalistic, global trying to colonize the world nonsense. The only ones that are sons of God are those who are put into the eternal son of God, and that's you. So see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon you, setting you apart, calling you out of darkness, calling you his son, and so you are. The reason why the world does not know us as that, right? The reason why you don't walk into the shopping market and everyone goes, oh my goodness, there goes the son of God. The reason that they don't know us is that it did not know him. The light that you have inside of you doesn't shine yet for all to see in the way that it will on the last day. But that doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah, The world doesn't know God, so it doesn't know Christianity. But beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. That's a fun, what's heaven going to be like one? We don't know. We just know it's going to be good because we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure, which is not to say you must have some perfect, ongoing, every second of your life, hope in Jesus to be pure is simply to know that you hoping in Jesus means you're already pure. You trusting that he is the risen son of the father means you are already saved. You feasting upon his body and blood means he's declaring to you, you're his child now. And the Antichrist cannot touch you for you've already overcome him. In the name of Jesus, amen.